Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Over the years, we've insisted on the biblical principle that the integrity of the teacher is irrelevant to their function. To illustrate this point, God repeatedly chooses sinners like the prophet Jonah to spread his word. Insofar as they repeat the words of Scripture, the one who teaches Scripture has no bearing on the mission. It's like in fantasy movies when a ghost or an alien takes over someone's body and controls their speech. Everyone watching the program knows that it is not they who are speaking. Likewise, when a priest stands up to read the gospel aloud in the assembly, it is not he who is speaking. In Matthew, when Peter speaks correctly about the Christ, it is only because God, through his Spirit, put the correct words in Peter's mouth. Whether he himself lives up to these words is an entirely different matter. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 17 to 20. Please join Richard and I for a free webinar series on Ephesians 4, sponsored by the Orthodox Christian Leadership Initiative, on April 11th and 25th at 8 a.m. Pacific and 11 a.m. Eastern. To register for the webinar, please visit orthodoxservantleaders.com and click events. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 323 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Last week, I made a comment about the distinction between Mark's gospel and Matthew's gospel with respect to what some scholars have wrongly called the messianic secret in Mark. And the reason they use this expression in Mark is because Jesus is intently, persistently, and relentlessly asking his disciples in Mark not to tell anyone who he is. In Matthew, Jesus will do the same thing, but it functions differently. So last week, I made the point that one of the distinctions between the Markan version of Peter's confession and the Matthean version was that in Mark, Jesus is insisting that they don't speak because they don't know what they're talking about. There's a different twist in Matthew. He will tell them, in fact, not to speak. And I need to call this out right away because I should have mentioned that last week when I was drawing the distinction. So pay attention to the text today. When you will hear Jesus tell them not to say anything, He's giving a different directive than he gave in the Gospel of Mark. 
Jesus is drawing this distinction between the Son of Man and the Son of God and the Messiah. This distinction is something that this whole chapter turns on. Jesus is trying to teach them what it means to be Messiah, what is the function of the Messiah, and what is the function of the Son of God, as opposed to the Son of Man. Peter needs to understand what this means, and if he's halfway there, it can be dangerous. It's less about the confession of Peter and more about the exegesis of Jesus. Jesus exegetes Peter's statement for him in Matthew, but he doesn't in Mark. This speech that we're going to discuss today from Jesus is not in Mark. In Mark, it just skips and Jesus says, don't say anything about me. Here, it's, this is what you should be understanding when you say this. In both Mark and Matthew, the disciples manifest cluelessness. And I say that with no sense of hyperbole, sarcasm, or humor. I think it's important for people to understand that in the story, they manifest a kind of cluelessness. It's part of the plot. But in Matthew, it's different than Mark. In Mark, they really don't get it at all. It's a shorter gospel. It pounds the message in. Remember, it's the gospel where we hear this word, ephthys, immediately over and over and over again. Matthew is a bit more like Genesis in the sense that it's expounding the entire story. It's a longer, broader, more complicated text. The disciples, Peter specifically here, may understand what he didn't in Mark, that when Jesus is talking about bread, he's speaking in metaphor. When he says leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it's a metaphor. Peter may have some understanding of son of man. Peter may even be able to make the leap by the grace of the dove, the spirit, he is Barjona, he might be able to make the leap to understand by that grace of the teaching that Jesus is the Christ. But the question arises, does the ability to explain something mean that you can accept it or submit to it? Can you submit to it? Can you choose life over death? That's a powerful question when death looks like life in the hands of Caesar, and life looks like death on the cross. This is a very important challenge, and Matthew, in the way that Jesus will explain to them that they shouldn't talk about him being the Christ, which is different than saying, don't tell anybody who I am. He's saying, don't talk about the Christ. Don't reveal that I'm the king. It has a totally different feel to it. The directive exists in different forms in both texts, but it functions differently. We have to keep hammering on this Caesar versus Messiah, Caesar versus Son of God, one Son of God versus the other Son of God distinction, because Matthew is the book of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. We've been saying this from the very beginning. This is the theme. This theme was not as prominent for the past couple chapters, but it's going to come back hard here because we have to understand this. This is the thesis of Matthew, that Jesus is bringing the kingdom. He's not just talking about it like John the Baptist. He is bringing it. With him comes the inheritance. He is the representative of his Father on earth. The kingdom is now present. Now, maybe this news doesn't go out the way that the excited 
ignorant disciples might want it to go out, but it will go out when it is time. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. There are some critical features to this verse. First of all, as I said just a moment ago, this title, Bar-Jonah, is really interesting. On the one hand, Jonah means dove, which is the symbol of the Spirit in the New Testament. It also ties Peter to the story of Jonah. So remember, Peter is like the prophet in the sense that he is a reluctant apostle to the Jewish community with the gospel, just like Paul was the apostle to the nations. He's reluctant. So the Spirit here is poured out on Peter and forces him to recite the content of the teaching that Jesus is the Messiah, not the way Caesar is the arbiter of death in the name of life. This is something different. And that's why that expression, flesh and blood, is critical also. This is Pauline terminology. The flesh is anything that is human, anything other than that which comes directly from God. And of course, we know by now, if we don't, go back and read Genesis again. One of the key dimensions of Genesis is the insistence that man is not God. It's a basic thing, but it's a critical thing. Man is not God. Flesh and blood pass away. Flesh and blood look to Caesar, but the Spirit looks to the Christ so this tension between how they understand the Son of Man and how it relates to truly their understanding and submission to the teaching of the Christ continues to be teased out in the text. Bar-Jonah has so many different potential meanings. It's wonderful because Jonah is also the dove that brings the good news to Noah. Jonah is also the reluctant prophet who didn't want to follow the word that was given to him. Jonah was also the one who delivered the word to the Ninevites. And those who were birthed by this word, the children of this word of Jonah, repented and they believed. And so it's got all these different meanings in all these potentialities. And the idea of this being revealed by flesh and blood, you know, like you were saying, Father, it's understanding things according to the things that pass away. But this is what's been happening for the past chapter. Jesus had to tangle with the Pharisees and the Sadducees about where they get their news from. Are they getting it from flesh and blood, i.e. from looking at the heavens to see if it's going to rain or not? Or are they looking to Scripture? Because there's no way you can understand Jesus to be the Son of the living God by looking at him. By looking at the flesh and blood of Jesus, you're not going to be convinced. You have to be convinced by something else in the way that Ninevites would not be convinced by Jonah unless there was something else. And they were not convinced by Jonah or Jesus. They were convinced by the Word. And the Word is from their Father who is in heaven. He's the one that brings this Word. If you believe in the Word that comes from the Father in heaven, then you believe that Jesus is the Christ. Otherwise, you don't. Whether Simon, and Simon also is interesting because it means the one who hears, that's the name of a tribe as well, 
the one who hears the son of Jonah or the son of the dove can only come to this conclusion if he's hearing the word of the father. We don't get a sequel to Jonah, Jonah part two, to see if the Ninevites become any better in the long run after their big fast. Do they become better after God shows them mercy? We don't know. But with Peter, like you said, Father, uh, which side is he going to stay on? He proclaims this, but how does he understand it? Jesus is not entirely confident that he understands it the right way. That's why Jesus needs to exegete Peter's statement to make sure at least Jesus is putting the record straight. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Ipetros, Peter, Tipetra, rock. Peter's function as the foundation of God's household isn't dependent on Peter any more than Jonah's mission was dependent on Jonah, because the rock is, in effect, provided by the pouring out of the Spirit. So Peter isn't a rock per se, ontologically. He's made into the foundation of of the structure because the Spirit made it so. And we'll see potentially against Peter's will and instincts. The way that we make a big deal out of Peter personally here is misguided. Exactly. We can't base it on Peter's person, on Peter's ontology. It's how Peter is functioning. When Peter is functioning correctly, he's speaking the word. Way to go, Peter. You said the right thing. Jonah said the right thing, too, one time in the entire book. He got one sentence right in the entire book of four chapters. And he doesn't say, on you, I'm going to build it. It's on this rock. Peter said the correct thing. He could not have understood that except through the word of the Father. This is the only way it can function. If Jesus is going to build a church, it's going to be based on this profession that comes not from flesh and blood, but from the word that comes from the Father. This hardness, this strength, this perseverance, this eternality even of the word that comes from the Father is what the body of believers is going to come from. So sometimes people like to say that the church is like its own thing, and it's against the church that nothing is going to prevail. But the church is the church because it's based on Scripture, the word of the Father. And of course, we talked about this earlier, Dr. Benton. The specific reference to Adis, which is a Hellenistic term for the realm of the dead, and ultimately the proper noun for the god Hades, it's interesting. There's an interplay there, too, between the realm and the name of the deity. But the point is that Matthew is taking this Hellenistic concept, the name of one of the Greek gods— and pitting it against the church. So there is a direct showdown between Hades, the god of the dead, the ruler of the underworld, the underworld itself, this abyss where spirits go to once they get through the sticks, literally, and this community, this household, this body established by the teaching of the Father, which was poured into Peter's ear. That teaching, which is revealed by the instruction of the Spirit in God's household, 
is what ensures the victory of the body of Christ against the gates of death. It's beautiful. And I appreciate the fact that Isabel Hapgood uses the word Hades when she's translating liturgical texts because it teases out, for those who are attentive to her careful translation in Elizabethan English, it teases out this tension between Hellenism and the Bible. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. If you hadn't read the previous verse and if you don't read the rest of the chapter, you think that this whole chapter is based on the person of Peter, but it is on the function of Peter. People think that now that Peter said this, now he's got the keys. Okay? It's not that he's got the keys. The point is that the word of the Father, which is the foundation of the church, is also the key. That the key of the kingdom of heaven, which allows one into the kingdom of heaven, because this is the theme the thesis of the entire book is this kingdom of heaven. And if you want in, this is the key. Whatever is allowed in or is not allowed to come in, it's based on this profession and understanding of who Jesus the Christ is. What is the Messiah? You have to understand this. This is the basic piece of knowledge you must have. And you can only grasp it if you grasp the word of the Father. This verse also imposes a judgment against Peter. Typically, when I hear clergy talk about this, they use it as a way of expressing, through the grace of the Holy Spirit and the laying on of hands, I have the power to do this. This is absolutely an incorrect reading of this text. It's not a power that you have. It's a duty to teach. When you don't teach someone the gospel, you make them blind, deaf, and dumb. That is why the Pharisees are under condemnation, because they have the power to teach, which unburdens people, which unshackles people from Hades, and they don't do it. It's like the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins is a declaration. It's not something you can do. You have to preach it, because the forgiveness doesn't come from human beings. It comes from God. So when someone seeks forgiveness, you're not allowed to psychologize them and burden them with human words. You have to preach to them the forgiveness of sins with all its accountabilities. So Peter now has received the word. He is Barjona. He has received the word and confessed it. Now he has the power to either speak it or hide it. And that's how he's going to be judged as the apostle to the Jewish community. It's a very serious matter. If you want to understand what power means, you need to make sure you read to the end of the chapter because immediately after Peter hears this, he misunderstands what it means. Power can only be understood in terms of the Christ, the Son of the living God, as the word of the Father reveals it. Not as you 
go off and imagine and meditate on what you feel the correct use of power is. That's not it. It has to be informed by this word. It has to be understood according to your Father who is in heaven, according to the things that are eternal and not according to flesh and blood. Because when you feel power, when you hear power, when you smell power, as a biological human being, you're going to understand it according to your biology, your flesh and your blood. And Jesus is rejecting this biological interpretation in order to offer a heavenly, eternal interpretation. And as long as Peter has this, he is wielding the keys. But as soon as he is not, he is no longer wielding the keys. He's wielding the keys of the kingdom of Caesar. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Looking at the beginning of this passage, he is the Son of God. He is the Christ. Jesus knows that it's so easy to be led by flesh and blood to understand who this Christ is, who the Messiah is, and who their king is. So if he understands who their king is incorrectly, they're going to go for Caesar immediately. Look, Peter, in the story of Paul's letters and acts, accepted the teaching and then stumbled. He understood, and that's what Paul talks about in Galatians. He confirmed that Peter and James understood the gospel and accepted it, but then Peter will stumble, and we'll see very soon in Matthew the same thing will happen. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.